This is an audio version of Max Haven's Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts. Introduction. We want revenge. This introduction begins with two epigraphs. The first from CLR James. The cruelties of property and privilege are always more ferocious than the revenges of poverty and oppression. For the one aims at perpetuating resented injustice, the other is merely a momentary passion soon appeased. When history is written as it ought to be written, it is the moderation and long patience of the masses at which men will wonder, not their ferocity. The second epigraph is by Eve Tuck and C. Ree. To the purported would-be hero, revenge is monstrous, heard but not seen, insatiable, blind with desire, the cyclops robbed of her eye. To the self-designated hero, revenge hails a specter of something best forgotten, a ghost from a criminal past. To the monster, revenge is oxygen. When you live in somebody else's utopia, all you have is revenge. We live in capitalism's utopia, a world almost completely reconfigured to suit the needs of accumulation, and the world's a light, and ours is an age of vengeance. It is vengeance, sadly, that is usually directed at those who deserve it least, and which leaves those whose actions led to the current state of affairs, or who benefit from it, free or even more empowered. Ten years after the global financial meltdown of 2008, the world is haunted by revanchist politics. Far-right reactionary and neo-fascist formations that seem to be based not on any glorious vision of a better future, but on taking revenge for what they think of as a stolen past. Revenge on whom? Revenge for what? The specifics are vague. The sentiment is razor-sharp. Everywhere, it seems, whole polities pivot towards agendas that promise to do little to alleviate their social suffering, but rather offer a vehicle for antipathy. My argument is that vengefulness can be observed in some form across the sorry ruins of the political spectrum. A certain cynical, nihilistic vindictiveness that emerges part and parcel of an equally cynical, nihilistic, and vindictive form of capitalism. But do not mistake me for adding to the chorus who feign surprise at the rise of what they dismiss as, quote, anger or resentment or populism. By revenge, I mean not only a passing sentiment, but a logic of retribution, what Francis Bacon called a wild justice, a ruptural claiming of unpayable debts. My goal is deeper than describing the political mood of our moment. I want to explore the notion that capitalism itself is a revenge economy, a system that appears to be taking needless, warrantless, and ultimately self-defeating, but nonetheless profitable for some, vengeance on the world. Revenge capitalism breeds revenge politics among populations that reel from its impacts and lash back, though usually, tragically, at the wrong targets. I think it is long overdue for us to imagine what it would mean to avenge what has been done to us and to the planet. The line between revenge and avenging is subtle, both linguistically and conceptually, 
But whereas revenge fantasies fixate on retribution in the coin in which the original injury was dealt, and thereby risk perpetuating that economy, an avenging imaginary dreams of the abolition of the systemic source of that injury and the creation of new economies of peace and justice. Such a reckoning is justified. Reliable estimates confirm that millions of largely innocent people will die and billions will suffer and be displaced by the effects, including floods, droughts, and volatility of climate change, due predominantly to the carbon emissions of industrial and consumer capitalism. Even though major players in the key industries and positions of power knew of these realities decades ago, they purposefully buried the information to ensure profitability and competitiveness. It is hard to think of a more monumental crime against humanity, but not a single person has been brought to justice, nor will they be under the current global order. We have heard a great deal recently about climate grief, the melancholia of being made to bear witness to the terrors of ecological calamity. But we have heard nothing of climate revenge. Why is that? Much the same could be said for the executives of corporations whose products introduce toxins into the world and into our bodies, who hire ruthless paramilitaries to defend their mines and plantations, or who otherwise externalize the costs of their profiteering onto populations made vulnerable by decades or centuries of exploitation or colonialism. The politicians who beat the drums of war, or whose policies have led to the grim neoliberal abandonment of millions of people will never, under this system, be made to pay. One cannot read about the agonizing premature death suffered by the predominantly poor racialized inhabitants of the Grenville Tower of London in the 2017 fire, made susceptible to tragedy by systemic oppression, crass profiteering, and government neglect, without seeing red. One cannot recall the similarly patterned abandonment of black neighborhoods to Hurricane Katrina, or the wanton annihilation unleashed on the Middle East by the War on Terror, or the impunity of the far-right death squads of Latin America, without tasting blood. In the shadow of vindictive borders, beloved bodies drown or waste away to assuage the fear and protect the comforts of the privileged. The world is saturated with heart-wracking injustices that, even more grotesquely, are not even framed as injustices in the worldview of the powerful, just a regrettable necessity or a hiccup of progress. So I'm interested in what it might mean to face our fear of revenge head on and to ask, what would it mean today in the face of the rise of reactionary revenge fantasies to cultivate an avenging imaginary as a revolutionary force? From one perspective, revenge could be seen merely as the slander that the powerful use to defame and to castigate the claims to justice of the oppressed, whereas their own daily economic and juridical terrorism, what I am thinking of as systemic vengeance, simply names itself as law or necessity. Such systemic vengeance is enabled by, and helps to enable, an economy of oppression. Through the phrase, economy of oppression, I intend to name a broad range of interconnected systems in which the value of life is misaccounted. From the material economy, to the economy of justice overseen by courts and laws, to the economies of representation superintended by media or formal educational institutions. In the face of these economies of oppression, I propose that an avenging imaginary can be cultivated 
within which some collective we comes to recognize its shared fate and elevates its vengefulness into a transformative force. Rather than simply reclaiming a debt, seeking reparations, or answering a harm within the same economy of oppression, an avenging imaginary yearns for the negation of the negation and the abolition of that economy in the name of collective liberation. In the absence of avenging imaginaries, the world is plagued by self-perpetuating cycles of revenge politics. The ongoing war on terror offers a profound example. For decades during and since the Cold War, American imperialism acted vengefully in the Middle East to ensure political stability and extract resources. Blowback came in the form of isolated terrorist attacks against civilians, notably those of September 11, 2001. A major theater of war was unleashed that destroyed multiple countries, killing and impoverishing and traumatizing millions of people, to say nothing of, back home, gutting what remained of the welfare state and dooming so many Americans to debt, poverty, and abandonment. New revenge politics arise in the ashes, most dramatically so-called ISIS. Meanwhile, the weaponized and traumatized American soldiers returning from war, not only trained and armed for modern combat, but suffused with white supremacist ideology, wreak their political revenge on the home front, in many cases targeting those feminists, queer folks, Muslims, Jews, black people, etc., etc., whom they mistakenly believe stole their American dream. Who ultimately profits? In spite of the massive human economic cost of these wars, on balance the major corporations listed on the Dow, the NASDAQ, and on other indices have been the beneficiaries. But do not mistake me for rehearsing the worn-out trope that an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, and that revenge is an endless, merciless cycle. In many cases, this cheap moralism hides the actuality of power relations and does a grave injustice to the, the vastly disproportionate costs by substituting a sentimental both-sidesism for a substantial analysis. Every life is precious indeed. If we actually believe it, we owe ourselves the kind of honesty that would allow us to understand and hopefully abolish the kinds of imperialism, white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalist exploitation, patriarchy, and other modes of oppression that create systems and structures of revenge. We have been led to believe, and perhaps it's true, that revenge is an eternal human passion, the terrible but captivating way the violence and cruelty of which humans seem uniquely capable is wedded to the sublime cunning of our singular species. The revenger's plot is sickly fascinating. We have been told by no less than the greatest poets and philosophers of many civilizations that revenge only begets revenge, opening a chasm to hell which rips apart people, families, and whole societies. Meanwhile, quests, often tragic quests, to avenge a wrong or an injustice represent some of our oldest and most celebrated stories. Likewise, many of the world's major religions provide wise words about the virtues of forgiveness or of supernatural assurances that even if we cannot take a revenge or avenge the wrongs done to us and those we love in this material realm, the scales will be balanced in God's judgment or the cosmic accounting of karma. Let us set aside these timeless questions here and now. Echoing Sarah Ahmed's approach to the cultural politics and political economy of happiness, my question here is not what revenge is, 
but what, as a cultural and economic factor, revenge does. In this book, when I speak of revenge and of avenging, I have a historical and materialist argument in mind. I want to know about it in the here and now and its role that it plays in the first truly worldwide human system of global neoliberal racial capitalism. One of the core arguments of this book is that revenge is a useful adjective to attach to capitalism because it helps explain the seemingly irrational, certainly blood-curdling violence of the system, which reduces so many of us to utter worthlessness and disposability. Calling up the term revenge also helps us better understand the system's foundations in the cruelties of empire, colonialism, and the racial ordering of humanity. These cruelties that continue to this day as humans are completely unnecessarily warehoused in prisons, left to die in slums, worked to death in mines, abandoned to the border, or denied the care that they require. This vengeance emerges as capitalism responds, directly and indirectly, to constant resistance to its rule. This resistance is ultimately the source of the contradictions and crises that drive its innovations and its excesses. So let us begin with four preliminary theses. This book is a hybrid work of revolutionary storytelling with scholarly characteristics. I am not aiming to offer a comprehensive theory of revenge or of capitalism, but rather to explore the generative tensions that come from holding revenge and capitalism together in an uncomfortable proximity. Let me begin with four theses on revenge capitalism that will recur throughout this book. The first is that revenge is inherent to capitalism. Now, liberal and neoliberal philosophers have insisted that capitalist democracy is the climax of human political achievement, the culmination of centuries of human social evolution that have seen the knights of reason and law banish the dragon of revenge to the borderland. But revenge is with us still. Indeed, a kind of revenge is at the core of capitalism, though a revenge largely executed without any single human intending it, operating through the everyday and allegedly inevitable banalities of the economy. In the first case, this is the necessary vengeance of maintaining and expanding the capitalist order, undertaken on the frontiers of capitalist accumulation, such as colonies, or on the front lines of class struggle. As I will argue, this violence typically masquerades as justice and claims that its victims are pathologically vengeful. But I am more interested in how capitalism develops within it systems and structures that are themselves per perhaps best described as vindictive, where seemingly counterproductive cruelty and logic of usually unwarranted retribution appears to characterize the motion of the system as a whole. My argument here is that, while there are indeed many individuals and institutions that bear much of the blame for these patterns, they, and we all, exist in a system that sustains itself and its cruelties by seeking to transform each and every one of us into a replaceable, competitive agent of its reproduction. I'm arguing that under capitalism, a system driven by contradictions and competition rather than by coherence and conspiracy, Systemic revenge emerges without any single agent intending it. That's the tragedy, curse, and challenge of our moment. 
Second, revenge capitalism generates revenge politics. Revenge capitalism, as its crises deepen and its violences become obscene, awakens revenge politics. By revenge politics, I mean primarily, but not exclusively, the global reactionary turn that is often misleadingly labeled as populism. On the one hand, as numerous authors have made clear, the actual systemic sources of misery, precariousness, alienation, and fear are obscured. Those who experience these terrors are all too easily turned by unscrupulous political agents towards convenient hatreds, often hatreds of race sewn into the fabric of society by the histories of empire. On the other hand, revenge politics speaks to the ascendancy of a fascistic politics that has long been plotting revenge against those so-called minority groups whose victories over the past century or more have unsettled the rule of the powerful, women, queer folk, ethnic and religious minorities, unions, intellectuals, and artists, and the like. But revenge politics is at work on the so-called left as well, though with nowhere near the same implications or consequences. Here, at the proverbial end of history, when capitalist realism has all but strangled the radical imagination and our ability to manifest a compelling vision of what a better society might look like, we easily fall into a kind of reactive revenge politics. In the absence of a revolutionary vision or strategy, radical tactics can become obsessive and vindictive, narrowly targeting individuals, corporations, or policies in ways that inhibit, rather than contribute to, collective liberation. The staggering reality of, of actually existing revenge politics today is gender-based violence, the vast majority of it perpetuated by cisgendered men. The vast majority of this vengeance is exacted against female intimate partners or family members whom the, the perpetrator deems to be guilty of betrayal, dishonor, or disobedience. There is also worldwide a huge amount of other lethal violence vastly disproportionately enacted by men against queer, trans, and non-binary people. Violence that often seeks to take revenge for failure to obey conservative norms of gender and sexuality. While patriarchy long predates capitalism, numerous thinkers have illustrated their integration. We can, for instance, observe the links between patriarchal vengeance and the three angles of revenge capitalism I will be consistently returning to throughout this book. Unpayable debts, the surplusing of populations, and what I term hyper-enclosure. Veronica Gago, Silvia Federici, and Sayak Valencia all theorize the connection between the rule of unpayable debts and the rise of gender-based violence. It is also exhaustively documented that forms of displacement, dispossession, and vulnerability experienced by surplused populations, including migrants, refugees, incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, and those who are ghettoized, give rise to dramatically increased gender violence. And contrary to the dreams of an interconnected world, such that it would lead to the decline in gendered violence, the globally extensive and dramatically intensive reach of an indifferent, exploitative, alienating, and ultimately nihilistic form of capitalism into every aspect of our lives has in part contributed to the growth of misogynistic, reactionary political tendencies and movements that seek to restore meaning, authenticity, and community through the rigid and often violent policing of gender and sexuality. Third, capitalism shapes our understanding of revenge. 
Capitalism, like all systems of power, is reproduced not simply through brute force, though of course that is certainly part of it, but also through a whole contradictory moral order, where its violences and inequalities are normalized, and in which those who refuse or rebel are framed as bestial, stupid, and doomed. It is within liberal capitalism's dominant moral economy that we have come to understand revenge. It may well be an internal human drama, but our interpretation of that drama, our notion of what revenge is, is a discursive formation shaped by the moral order of the historically unique system in which we are steeped and to whose reproduction we are all compelled to contribute. How we imagine re revenge is shaped by a system of revenge. Thus, capitalism appears, in its own preferred cosmology, as not only the natural expression of basic and inexorable human impulses to compete, to accumulate, and barter, but as the triumph of order, of peace, and of plenty. Capitalism has, in a certain sense, benefited from the justified timeless opprobrium for revenge, framed only as an individual drive, to mask its own systemically vengeful nature, and to castigate its enemies as heinously, nihilistically vengeful. It is common enough to hear reactionary pundits and politicians sneer at popular demands for economic redistribution and justice with the accusations that they are driven by envy and vindictiveness against the hard-working rich. Throughout capitalism's history, anti-colonial and working-class rebellions have been narrated by the powerful as vengeful spasms of inchoate rage from uneducated and morally deficient mobs, taken as evidence, ironically enough, that the very conditions of vengeful subjugation and punishment that led to the uprisings in the first place were necessary in the first place. For this reason, in this book, revenge represents, in part, the name that the powerful give to claims to justice, to settlement, or to closure from below, from those imagined not to be entitled to them. Those who seek to step outside the moral and legal regulations of the current order, to balance the scales, to call on an unpaid debt, or to answer a harm, are slandered as vengeful threats to the common good which is really simply the good of the wealthy and the powerful. Our fear of revenge, then, is not simply the patrimony of thousands of years of literature and moral thought. It is also something instilled in us by the system in which we live to tame the radical imagination. Fourth, what would it mean to avenge the crimes of capitalism? For those of us who continue to survive these injustices, for those of us who can barely live in a world of such injustices, for those of us who know there are great debts of history to be repaid for slavery, for colonialism, for the exploitation of our ancestors, for the terrors of inequality, what promise does revenge hold? How might we move from volatile and unreliable revenge fantasies, which seem to increasingly define politics today, to an avenging imaginary, capable of inspiring and holding together the kind of revolutionary assemblage of the exploited. How could avenging be a dream that moves us beyond vindictive violence and towards the horizons of cooperation and care that are the stuff of the new world we must build? This book is not an apologia for revolutionary violence, nor is it a condemnation of it. 
It seems to me less and less deniable that our choice now as a species is between revolution or slow annihilation, and that any revolution against so violent a system is likely to have violent elements. Perhaps this revolution is already underway, and perhaps too is the even more bloody counter-revolution. Rather, this book asks the question, if we were to take revenge seriously, what would it tell us about the times in which we live and, more importantly, how to change them.